This is Israeli Technology Founders Speak, a podcast of conversations with successful Israeli high-tech and biotech entrepreneurs, hosted by me, Barack Holman. Avraham Hermon is a senior partner at JMB Davis Ben David, a U.S. patent agent and an Israel patent attorney. He has a BA in chemistry and a master's in law. Prior to joining the firm, Avraham worked in a number of Israeli pharmaceutical companies, including Teva Pharmaceutical Industries, where he led a team of patent attorneys in providing opinions on potential new developments in prosecuting patent portfolios related to Teva's products. I'm Barack Holman, the marketing director at JMB Davis Ben David. Avram and I sat down in his office to discuss what he's learned from interviewing over 20 Israeli startup founders, how patents help startups and when to pursue a patent, when to bootstrap and when to seek funding, why Israeli startups are so successful, and much more. This podcast is a creation of J.M.B. Davis Ben David, an intellectual property law firm serving clients around the world. You have great innovations. We keep them safe. It's not enough to just have a great startup idea or innovation. If you don't legally protect your innovations, products, and brand, anyone can claim them as their own. We keep your great innovation secure. Learn more by going to jmbdavis.com. That's J-M-B-D-A-V-I-S dot com. Avram, you are the host of this podcast, and now I'm interviewing you for the podcast. So you've interviewed around 20 startup founders for the podcast. How has that made you a better patent attorney? That's a really good question. I think for one, a lot of startups encounter difficulties, and that's one of the things I focus on in the podcast. In other words, there's no easy route to founding a company, finding a need, filling that need. I think that once I understand the difficulties that a startup founder encounters, it's a lot easier for me to provide service for him and uh, to understand his concerns. Sometimes I joke around that being a patent attorney is a little bit like being a psychologist, that we don't just talk patents. We have to really get into the, the nitty gritty of the technology on one hand but also be able to see the big picture, the business goals, where the people are coming from, who the inventors are, and try to take this all into account and to create these complex legal documents that we create based on that understanding, based on that knowledge. So what changed from before you started the podcast until now that you've spent something like about a year and a half, two years interviewing people? How is your perspective of helping companies changed? Well, I guess until now, I've really been focusing on obtaining IP for my clients, patents, trademarks, mostly patents, uh, how to protect the most valuable parts of their business. And now I come to realize that this is potentially easier than getting a product to market. In other words, I've always known that. But when I actually see the founder's and their difficulties and their struggles, and how many different things they have to take into account in order to move something forward. They're, they're like constantly juggling. It's not only, they're not only concerned about IP. IP is one small but significant part of their business. They also have to understand the market. They have to understand their technology, their competitors. They have to get funding. All these things are intertwined. So 
for me, a startup founder is just juggling. He has a lot of balls up in the air, trying to keep everything without dropping anything. And uh, it's been an interesting experience for me because I really see the whole picture a lot better. What was your most interesting interview of all the founders? What's the one that stands out in your mind? I would have to say Space Pharma, just because... Homos in space. <laughs> exactly. Uh, they're doing something that's just so different. And uh, I think my own personal connection to, to space and to astronomy... Oh, right. Your father was going to be an astronaut. He applied to be an astronaut with NASA. And that, that came out in the interview. I think that you know, space is something that we human beings have always been thinking about and considering you know, what's out there. And now we're not really considering what's out there. We're considering what can we do with what's out there? How can we make society on Earth better knowing what's out there, using the tools that we have and uh, bringing things up into space? So that's been really fascinating for me, I think, just understanding and learning more about this company. And most of the companies that you've interviewed are medical or biotech, not so much in like the anything high tech where you're sticking with biotech. Mm -hmm. Mainly, I think, because you're comfortable there, right? Because yeah, of your background. Yeah, these, these are the type of, of companies that I typically deal with. I think that I'm comfortable there. I think that uh, people know Israel as the startup nation. When I read The Startup Nation, that book uh, by Singer, I think that my impression coming away is like, okay, you guys did a great job talking about high tech. But what about biotech? What about medical devices? Maybe you mentioned a little bit about it in the book, but mm -hmm. there's so much going on here in Israel. Um, and I felt that high tech already gets a, a big spotlight. And uh, I think that uh, you know, medical and bio, not only is it interesting to me, I think that, that part of my mission is to inform people about it. Obviously, what I can inform. Part of my mission on this podcast is to get people excited about it. How did you get into patents, biotech? chemistry. What brought you to that? I think it's a long story, but growing up as a kid in the U.S., my father was a chemist, and uh, I was growing up with two brothers. I think I was probably more interested than my brothers in chemistry. I remember having a chemistry set. I remember playing with all sorts of chemicals as a kid with my friends, and you know, obviously we were interested in mischief and lighting things on fire and seeing what colors things would burn. And then I had a teacher in 10th grade who uh, taught us chemistry, and I really connected to the subject. He made chemistry very interesting, so I knew in the back of my head that that was something I wanted to pursue. Over the course of my growing up, my father also made a career change into patents, so I'm a second-generation patent uh -huh. attorney, uh -huh. patent agent, and uh, I would discuss patents with him, and I thought that it was something interesting. And being in Israel, I'd already moved to Israel when I got into the patent field, I said, you know, I have a sort of advantage here that... I understand a little bit about patents. I speak and write English fluently. Um, I have a scientific background. I like learning about new things. And that's what patent law is about. When people speak to me and ask me about the field, and it happens a few times a, a year because a lot of English-speaking people move to Israel and are interested in the field, one of the things that I ask them is, you know, background and education is important. Um, I don't have a, a PhD in science. Some of the people that I speak to do, but I don't think that's critical for being a good patent attorney. The reason is that one of the skills that we're going to need is not in-depth focus on one topic because you're not, going to, you're not going to be, as a patent attorney, drafting patent applications in your very specific field of expertise just because there aren't enough patents. There aren't enough inventions in that specific field. 
if you're a biologist, there are so many different fields within biology that you could cover. And you're going to get inventions in various different fields. And you have to learn quickly, adapt yourself to understand these fields, and then ask the right questions to the inventors. The inventors are the experts. You have to be able to ask the right questions. You have to be able to learn quickly. Why quickly? Because you can't spend an infinite amount of time on each invention because your client in the end of the day is paying you. And, and chances are, if you're in this field, you're billing an hourly fee or you're billing a set fee that's based on number of hours that you're going to put into to a project. And you can't spend an unlimited amount of time. So you have to learn things quickly, learn things quickly, mm-hmm. pick things up on your own, autodidactic. And those are important characteristics for a patent attorney. And I think I have those characteristics. I love learning things on my own, no matter really what field. I'm interested in a lot of different fields, not just chemistry, not just biology. What I do outside of work reflects that desire that I have to learn new things, to try new things. I I try to do things on my own, build things, experiment with things on my own, even if they're not in my field. So one of the questions that you ask people on the podcast is, why are Israeli startups so successful? So after interviewing all these people, why do you think Israeli startups are so successful? I think that the people that I've met so far have this level of perseverance that is surprising and impressive. In other words, not willing to take no for an answer. Or if you get no for an answer, let's let's try a different way. This door is locked. Let's try to break through the wall. Let's try to, let's try to break through somehow. Let's get around it. And I don't know exactly where that comes from, whether it's something that people learn in the army or whether it's part of the culture. I don't even know how it compares to other cultures. I mean, I've been in other societies. I visited in Japan, for example. I think Japan is a very law-abiding society and people are very into following the rules. In Israel, I think you, you see, you know, you drive on the roads here, you see that not everyone is exactly following the rules. Uh-huh. Not everyone is straight in line. And then it could be that this is the same characteristic, that what's what's encouraging people to think outside the box is also encouraging people to sort of you know bend those rules. Oh, those rules don't apply. To view themselves as not having limitations in the professional sphere and saying, mm-hmm. hey, maybe maybe I can I can do things a little bit differently than everyone else. So what? You know, a lot of people threw a lot of money at something, tried to solve a problem, solve a problem. Um, they weren't successful. I have a different way. I'm going to go through a different door. I think that's a good point that you just made. Because I was going to say, as far as not being law-abiding, there's plenty of countries where people are not law-abiding. But here, right. Israelis feel like they basically don't have a respect for authority in the sense that your authority is not really authority. Yeah, fine, you might be in a senior position, but I could do that job. And they don't let the limitations, like the mental limitations that other people might have, hold them back. I think you're right. I think that also comes into play in the lack of formality that there is here. In the army also. Well, I think that in the army there is some sort of structure and formality, but there is, a in, in the professional field, there's a little bit of, there's, there's less formality here. You can address people in a more casual way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can collaborate with people that are on a different level than you and learn from them and, and assist them. So less barriers. Yeah. That's what it seems like from the interviews. You know, I edit the interviews, mm-hmm. so I listen to them at least two times. It seems like basically if you know somebody, they'll call their friend and say, set up a meeting for me. And they'll give you, even if it's just five or 10 minutes, they will give you some time. Right. I found also that entrepreneurs tend to be extremely helpful. And 
a lot of people in this in this uh, field are are very helpful. People want to see other people's success. I see that. I see people are willing to mentor. Like I said, I'm willing to answer a lot of people's questions and people want to go into the patent field. I'd be happy to talk to them about that. And I do that a number of times a year. I give a number of lectures on the IP field pro bono. You know, I'm not intending on gaining really anything from it. I speak to students that are interested in IP, just not necessarily for my exposure for myself to, to gain clientele, but more to, to give, to contribute to the community. And I see that in all different levels. And that could be creating some sort of atmosphere of giving and helping. And It seems like a culture of generosity. Mm-hmm. Not necessarily physical. It's not like people are giving everyone gifts. But you want to ask me something? You want to access my knowledge or my experience? Sure, here. Ask me whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's a small country as well. It's a, it's a small country. And I, I know with a lot of my clients, sometimes the assistance that I provide to them is a little bit above and beyond IP. I see that they have a problem and I, I can connect them with some sort of consultant that I know from another client or another position that I've held in the past. And I'm happy to use my professional network to do that, to help people. And you know, if a, com- a company that's my client succeeds in the end, then it's in my benefit they succeed because they'll continue being my client, continue gener- generating IP, maintaining IP, and continue working with me. So this sort of uh, assistance I see, I get from others, and I also try to provide. So how have you seen startup businesses use patents as part of their business strategy? So I think that the most straightforward way is that a company files patent applications on their technology. Sometimes it's one patent application that's filed in multiple jurisdictions. Sometimes it's multiple patent applications filed in multiple jurisdictions. And that acts as a tool for them to raise capital because a company will only be judged based on its ability to produce a product in the future and also to be able to earn money from that product. So part of this puzzle, when an investor invests in a company, they have to understand that, A, there's a chance that this product will be successful and marketable. Not only that, that a company will have a certain exclusivity vis-a-vis the product when it gets to the market. So when I was before joining a firm, I worked for a pharmaceutical company for eight years called Teva Pharmaceutical Industries. And that's really where I trained on the job. And that's where I became a patent attorney. And part of what I did was actually looking from the other side, from the investor side. Teva didn't do research and development from scratch. But what they would do is rather than R&D, they would just do the and D, the development side. And they would in-license projects coming from universities and startups all over the world. And they would then test the products and develop those products and bring them through preclinical and then clinical development. So for me, I was sort of playing the role of the examiner and looking at patents in the eyes of, of an examiner, of a patent examiner saying, what are the chances that this company is going to get IP that's valuable, that's meaningful. And so from the very beginning of my career, I was already looking at that side of IP. In addition to that, I think I have some clients that have developed products, have obtained patents, went through the patent office, get patents, and then for some reason, stop the development of that product. And for whatever reason, they stop it. Maybe it, maybe it didn't work exactly as they expected. Maybe they, they figure that it's not their core business anymore, but they have this patent asset. And I've helped such companies 
take this patent asset and say, hey, look, this is a valuable asset, even though it doesn't cover your product, even though you're not developing anything in the field. Why? Because others are developing things in this field. In other words, you can monetize this patent, you could license it, you could sell it, uh, you could turn this intellectual property asset into value, even if you're not per se manufacturing a product that's covered by this patent. You know, some people call this concept trolling or non-practicing entity. Those mm-hmm. are the technical terms used for, for, for such a thing. Um, I don't really view this as a negative thing. You've created an intellectual property asset. You were the first. The law gives you some sort of exclusivity. You paid for it. You invested in it. Use it. Use it somehow. Use it to allow others to use that monopoly, to take advantage of that monopoly, license it to others, sell it to others. Uh, th- these are really the two avenues that I see intellectual property helping startups. So I'm assuming that that's a business on its own, that people just patent ideas in order to resell them. Yeah, I think that's more common in the, in the high-tech field than in the biotech field. But uh, this, this exists and people, inventors do this. And what's, what's interesting about it is that if you're a small inventor and you invented something, uh, that's something good for society. You want that to be encouraged. So if there were no such entities that were able to buy this intellectual property, there's nothing encouraging these inventors to invent. It could be they're not, mm-hmm. they don't have the skill set. They don't have the connections. They don't have the capital to develop it on their own, especially in, you know, in, in the field of drug development. Getting a product to market, we're talking about a billion dollars. Really? Yeah, at, at least a billion dollars today. And from an idea to, to the market, that's testing in animals, testing in humans, all the regulatory hurdles, manufacturing it, getting to the market. We're talking about a billion dollars. We're talking about roughly 10 years, depending on the type of product. Now, well, not Give me an example of that. Like, well, you're talking about Advil? Well, Advil is kind of old. It's been around for a while. And the regulatory hurdles that were around when Advil was developed were not the same as the regulatory hurdles today. In other words, the ministries of health in the countries where you want to sell something, a medicine, they want to make sure that your product works and is safe. So you have to go through various levels of testing. This testing is expensive. You need to get insurance for this testing. Uh, You need to make sure that Every stage you move along, you move along slowly so you don't all of a sudden you know, go from creating this drug to testing it in thousands of people. You go through a very standard process of testing it in animals, finding that it works. And also, the, if your drug works, that might not necessarily be enough. If you come up with, let's say, an anti-cancer drug, and there are a number of anti-cancer drugs out on the market, you may not get approval if your, yours works less. It's less effective than what's wow. already out there. So there are huge, huge risks. Going back to individual inventors, if you want to encourage innovation, then what you need to do is you need to create pathways for these individual inventors to be able to monetize their invention. So they may not be able to develop something on their own, but giving them the fact that these sort of companies exist that will take intellectual property of individual inventors, buy it or get a license to it, and then use it to enforce against others uh, to get licenses, that's something that's important because this ecosystem of intellectual property probably wouldn't exist without it. You need to have this balance that's struck between the public and the inventors. You want to encourage invention, but you also don't want to lock up innovation so much that no one is able to practice this. Mm -hmm. So the balance that's formed is through the patent system is that an innovator, an inventor has 20 years of monopoly if he goes through this patent process. And after that 20 years, someone else can can uh, 
take advantage of that invention. That's and it's important that part of this process of the patent system allows for publication of of patent applications. In other words, at the very beginning of the process, other people are going to learn about this innovation, this invention. They're going to take that knowledge and they may not be able to practice it, but they can take it a step further and they can they can build on it and and be outside of the scope of the patent, but at the same time learn from it. The other option would be if there were no such thing as patents or incentives for inventors to invent, then everyone would keep their technology private and not publish it. And technology would essentially come to a halt because I can't, every, every innovation that I would make is built on what I read, what I see around me. So if people are keeping things private, I automatically see a lot less. Mm-hmm. So there's an incentive for society to encourage innovation, allow people to publish their patent applications, their ideas, and also for people at the same time to benefit from their inventions. You ever have any inventions? The truth is I've had a number of inventions. Nothing has really moved forward all that much. I've had a period of pause where I, that I took professionally between uh, different parts of my career were to pursue two ideas of my own. One of them was in the pharmaceutical field. One of them was in the medical device field. I applied for some grants to the Innovation Authority. I got a partner along that worked on one of the ideas with me. Actually, with both of the ideas, I got separate partners. And at the same time, I, I kept a part-time job in-house in an incubator. I came to realize that there are a lot of difficulties in, in getting a startup off the ground, getting funding. Uh, I thought my ideas were pretty good, but I guess uh, they, they didn't move forward. And then uh, as a result, I, I looked for full-time employment Got it. in the patent field. But it was great to have that experience to go through right. this process of taking your idea to something a little bit more, trying to raise funding, uh, working with a partner. Who knows? It, it, you know, maybe someday it will work. Maybe someday someone else will develop what I, what I thought of. Maybe not. But uh, in any case, I tried. I gave it my best. I think that's great, especially for your clients, that you have so much experience on your own and with other people and in the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that I'm a patent attorney who works in a firm, but also has worked in industry. And I think that it's really important to see both sides because the advantage that you have as someone working in industry is that you really sit with the people that are making the business decisions, not just with the inventors. You see the whole business from inside. That's super important. If you're working in a firm, you don't necessarily see that. But what you do see is that you have the responsibility of taking the patent from beginning to end. Whereas if you're in-house in a firm, you generally Get, you outsource that to someone in a firm. So I think I benefited from both worlds. Mm-hmm. The fact that I have industry experience now allows me to understand business needs, plan patent strategy based on business needs. And also now I have this this view of what it means to be working in a firm and taking complete responsibility for an IP portfolio mm-hmm. from beginning to end of a client. So we have kind of an internal debate going on in the podcast amongst the startup founders. Some are constantly looking for funding. It's like, there's like food. You know, they eat all the food, they need more food. Mm-hmm. Others, and I, I don't remember their names, but we had a, at least two veteran founders that said, yes. bootstrap. Exactly. Do not take any money. Right. So I think the more experience you have, the more you realize that any money you're going to raise is going to come with strings attached. 
And those strings are sometimes heavy ropes that are difficult to break. And those strings are sometimes what make a difference between a successful and a non-successful mm. startup. Wow. So I, I, I tend to agree, you know, from my experience, this has been really a learning process for me. And it's continuing to be a learning process for me. Because when I ask these questions, I don't know what they're going to answer. Mm-hmm. And uh, we don't we don't give them a script. Sometimes I give the, the founders the questions beforehand. Usually I do, just to the, so that they can prepare a little bit. But I come out with answers that sometimes surprise me. Yeah. And I think that here, that it's pretty clear that the message I get from very experienced startup founders is that you have to be really careful when you raise money, how you raise money, who your partners are. Because that's going to determine it's not it's not just a, a matter of getting as much money as you can as early as possible. You need to make sure that you really need this money in order before you raise it, which I think is actually a good approach in life in general. Mm-hmm. Try to live as as you can without asking any others for for help. Obviously, there's sometimes where you, where you feel like you need capital or you want to make money and you need to take out a loan for your business to grow. But at the same time, I think there's a very healthy environment or atmosphere. When, when you can actually say, hey, this is mine. I don't have anyone else that I owe for this idea. Mm-hmm. I've seen way too many startups that I've worked with that have had you know agreements that look pretty good starting out, and then at the end, they fall apart. And Why do they fall apart? It usually happens because something fails. You didn't get to, from point A to point B the same way that you wanted to. And now each side is pulling in, in, in a different direction and saying, I deserve this, I deserve that. You're saying amongst the founders or the investors and the founders? I think that a lot of times between collaborators, investors and founders, it's happen- it happens also between founders. One thing that I can't stress enough is that what I didn't speak about yet on, the, on this episode is that our job is to get patents granted for our clients in general. When we're talking about startups. That's mm-hmm. what their focus is, getting patents granted. One of the things that they seem to focus on less is making it very clear that, that this patent belongs to them. In other words... Who is the inventor? How does the chain flow from the inventor to the company? How do we show that the company actually owns this invention? And a lot of times I, I come, I, I do these analyses with my clients. I say to my client, listen, where is your written agreement with these people who did this work for you? Mm. Make sure that you have these agreements in place beforehand. Why? Because when you come to them afterwards and say, look, I'm filing a patent application on what you did. I think it has a lot of value. Then they might say, oh, wait, hold, hold on. You didn't really pay me enough for what I did for you. So I've encountered, unfortunately, too many cases of people that worked with others, didn't set the the conditions of the agreement and the ownership of the intellectual property in advance. I think that's something super important to keep in mind. Our job as patent attorneys, and I think a lot of patent attorneys miss it. Our job is not only to, to obtain patents, but to make sure that our clients own those patents and no one can question that. And if we don't ask these questions, then future investors will. Mm-hmm. They're going to go through a due diligence process and their lawyers are going to raise the same questions that we're asking. So better for it to take care of this as early as possible. Make sure that the rights are yours. As a patent attorney and the host of this podcast, you have a bird's eye view of other people's startups. Based on your experience and what you've learned from the guests on the podcast, what tips do you have for startup founders? Now, I would say that you gave quite a few tips at this point. Well, let me start with this. Get a good patent attorney. And you might think that you're not ready to file a patent application. You might think that there's no IP in your startup. Bounce that off of someone. It doesn't really cost that much for you to speak to someone. And in fact, I typically offer first free consultations to, to new clients. Just before we start working together, we, we like to make a plan, figure out what, what action items are required to move forward. 
Sometimes we decide there's really nothing. Or sometimes we say, come back in a year. But I'm willing to spend that hour, half hour of time to meet a client and to put him on the right path and to ask himself the right questions moving forward. And I think that another tip is what I said a few minutes ago, making sure that you, anyone that you're dealing with needs to have some sort of agreement with you. You want things written down. A written agreement. Written agreements. Yeah. Oral agreements are not going to help you all that much. Written agreements. And that's something that we can help clients with. Usually clients come to us, they already have lawyers. They already have founded a company or in the process of founding, founding a company, forming a company. So they have lawyers, they have people that can draft agreements for, for them. I don't personally draft agreements. That's not what I do. But what I could do is I could help work with lawyers. I could work with my clients and say, this is what you need. Another thing is publishing your invention too early, talking about it too much, whether it's to investors. Sometimes you want to make sure you have pro- provisional protection, what we call some sort of protection, some sort of filing on file before you start talking about your invention. I've seen it too often that potential IP, potential products, potential technology has been disclosed a little bit too early and too much. And that can come back to haunt the startup later. Mm -hmm. So these are some IP considerations that people should have. And I think that if someone is consulting with a patent attorney, that can really help them to guide them and uh, help them understand what they can publish, what they can't publish, what agreements they have to have in place before moving forwards. At what stage should they consult with a patent attorney? <laughs> I don't know if it's ever too early because uh, obviously there there's a timing issue of when you want to file your patent. You can't be too early. It can't just be on some idea that you're very far from actually putting into fruition. But at the same time, it can't be too late. So speaking to patent attorneys, though, is not so expensive. You want to do it as, as early as possible in your startup uh, formation. We can save you a lot of money and headache. You know, sometimes what we could do is we could do searches for you. You might think you know the field super well. You might think that you did Google searches, you did patent searches. We have a lot of experience searching. I've been searching for over 20 years uh, patents. And when I talk about searching, if I try to teach other people how to search, I describe it as an art of searching and not a science of searching. Mm -hmm. There's no scientific way of searching. You need to really have a lot of experience searching. And I think that the search isn't so expensive. You want to know for yourself what's out there in general terms before you start in this IP process. So you said when I asked you, when do you contact a patent attorney? Not too early, not too late. When do you know to contact a patent attorney? There's a bit of a chicken and egg issue here sometimes because sometimes people will just have an idea and they won't have a company. Maybe they'll, they'll have some friends that they spoke about with that are potential partners. They don't have capital. But at the same time, they want to determine if their idea is is patentable. So what do they do? Do they spend money on a search? Do they form a company first? Do they raise capital first? And only then do they do the search? I think that starting out, you know, if someone isn't willing to invest some of his own capital into the idea, even before starting a company, before getting investors on board, you need to show that you're serious. It will make you more show legitimacy. You know, you want to borrow from maybe some fr- from friends and family just to do as much preliminary IP work as needed to get to a point where you could say, hey, I did what I had to do. It could be a search. It could be a provisional application. Every case is unique. I can't on this podcast give a one size fits all description of the, the pathway for every startup. I remember we had a guest on the podcast. I don't remember who it was, but he said to basically do as much work as you can possibly do on your own, mm-hmm. without asking anyone for anything. Go to Fiverr, go to Upwork, 
hire whoever you can. Right. And, and I would say probably then after you've done all you can, maybe that's the time to contact a patent attorney. Yeah, I think that 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 would be helpful without exposing your idea. Right. I, I think people one of the mistakes that people make when they talk to us is that they say, OK, you're a patent attorney. I want to tell you my idea. But can you first sign on this confidentiality agreement? We are like your lawyer. We are like your doctor. We're obligated by our professional code to not disclose the invention to anyone else. We have on my wall, we have a patent attorney certificate. I'm, if I'm, if I'm in the business of taking, listening to people's invention, uh, listening to their ideas and then developing them on my own, I might as well take my, my <laughs> certificate and just throw it out, crumple it up and throw it in the garbage because there's no point in having that. And I think that's why it's important to make, make a sort of a line, a distinction between investors and patent attorneys. I know of some firms that are out there that startups are attracted to and they'll go to them and they'll say, um, listen, we're not, we don't have that much money. Can you invest in us? And I think that that's a little bit of a slippery slope because when your patent attorney is also your investor, what sort of decision is he making for you? What are his interests? And if I say to a startup, you know, we have the startup springboard program and a lot of clients have come through this startup springboard. And we say to the client, look, we want to be paid. We want to make sure you pay upfront, but we're going to give you real nice discounts. That way, as patent attorneys, we don't have the headache of chasing after you or of you not paying your bills. And at the same time, you gain a lot by lowering costs significantly and getting a good product. In the end. Whether it's a search or a provisional patent application or a non-provisional application, this program usually lasts for a year and a half for two years for, for startups that are accepted. All the partners in the firm together decide about it, call the startup springboard. And for anyone who's interested, they can find that on our website. That's exactly it. It's on our website. Sometimes clients will ask, oh, um, we don't want to pay, but we'll pay you in shares. And for, for me as a patent attorney, I think that my skill set involves giving patent strategy and providing input on intellectual property. My skill set is not a skill set of an investor. Mm -hmm. I don't know when you offer me shares, I don't know how much they're worth. So I don't have that skill set as far as I'm concerned. I'm going to focus on what I'm good at. You're going to pay me in cash. You might be able to get into this discounted program, but I'm looking at my job as a patent attorney and not as an investor. Okay. So the last question is, there's lots of firms out there in the world, in Israel, online, everywhere. What makes JMB Davis Ben David special, different or unique? I think that there's an environment here. There's a firm culture that it maybe breaks some stereotypes that you may have seen on TV shows about law firms in that it doesn't matter who you are in the firm. First and foremost, you're a person. You're going to treat other people well. And you're going to be treated well. And that is reflected by the way we treat our clients, our service providers, each other. And that's the, that's the environment that attracted me to this firm. I was at a number of different companies and firms. And when I was offered to get a position here and to stay here and to become partner, that was really what convinced me. And I think that's People say, oh, I'm talking about, you know, HR things and not professional things. This is part of our professionalism. In addition to that, I will add that the people here have a lot of experience. And I think we pride ourselves in the fact that we are not only a, an Israeli firm that works directly with the Israeli patent office and covers all types of intellectual property, but also acts as a U.S. firm. And that's, I think, unique. I think Israel is a small country. A lot of the startups coming to us they're not interested in the Israeli market at all because it's so small. There are 9 million Israelis, whereas when you look at Europe or the U.S., there are hundreds of millions of people that are potential customers, maybe even will pay better than the Israeli market. So most of our clients are not really focused on Israel. So 
Israeli patents sometimes are less important to them. The value that we can provide is that we're sitting here in Jerusalem or in Modin, and we are U.S. I'm personally a U.S. patent agent, as are five of my colleagues. We also have U.S. patent attorneys here. And we have the ability to provide the same services that we provide from Israel as a, a firm located in the U.S. And this, if this firm were located in New York, it would, it would charge probably twice as much as what we charge. Maybe out of town, it charges a little, little bit more than what we charge, but still more. But we're providing high quality services geared towards clients, potential market, i.e. the U.S., with, with our outlook of, of focusing on not only what's happening in Israel, but what's happening all over the world. So I think these are two main advantages of why someone should use our firm as opposed to any other firm available in Israel. And I think that uh, I haven't had really complaints from clients saying it's hard to get along with you, right? Mm-hmm. And that atmosphere here really trickles down and, and clients feel this ability to see eye to eye. And it's very rare that a client will come into the firm and say, hey, I found better patent attorneys or I found other patent attorneys that Sometimes it happens, someone gets a new investor and the investor has has a patent attorney that he's accustomed to working with and he wants to move to that attorney. That's legitimate. But someone to say that you've provided us bad service, we pride ourselves in, in good service and quality service. That's something that we pride ourselves in. And that's the, that's the feeling that we get from our customers. So we're happy to serve these customers and uh, hopefully we'll keep on doing it for a long time. It's a pleasure talking with you, Avram. Thank you very you too, much. Barak. Thank you. That was Avraham Hermon, a senior partner at JMB Davis Ben David. We hope you enjoyed this episode. There are many more to come. Do you have a great innovation or startup idea? We'd love to hear from you. You can reach out to us by going to our website, jmbdavis.com. And if you go to jmbdavis.com forward slash startup, you'll see we have a special site specifically made for startups to help startups protect their innovations. Please be in touch with us and find out how we can help you. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to bringing you the next episode.